You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2011. Today's episode is titled The Key to Advancement. Have you ever marveled at today's world? Consider some of the wonderful characteristics of modern civilization, such as human worth, equality between men and women, compassion and charity, health care, scientific knowledge, universal education, and dignity of work. You might ask, what is so special about these things? Well, if you lived in the days of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago, the above qualities would have been very special. The Roman Empire that dominated the world during Christ's time displayed very different cultural traits. The transformation of the civilized world from a repressive Roman culture to today's prosperous culture happened through the labors of men and women fulfilling their divinely ordained destiny in the context of a biblical worldview. The key to human advancement is alignment with the will and ways of God. Therefore, to build healthy, growing organizations, management must build with workers who are each doing what he or she is called to do in accordance with the biblical worldview. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, How Christianity Changed the World. Well, let's uh, open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to learn about how you work to be able to learn your thoughts so we can think your thoughts. And we thank you for your spirit that empowers us to do what you've called us to do, that enables us to really make the I declarations a reality, not because of us, but because of you. So, Father, grant us grace tonight, your empowering presence in our lives to receive what you want to say to us, and may it transform us so that we go out and be the people that you've called us to be, do the assignments that you've called us to do, to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our topic tonight is developing a worldview that works, and the subtopic is how Christianity changed the world. Some of you may be familiar with Charles Murray. He's an agnostic. He did a research project a few years ago, and he went back over the last, 3,000 years of history, really from about 800 B.C. to around 1950, and he asked the question, what is it that facilitates human accomplishment? What is it that makes things really happen? How does the, how do the society move forward and progress? Well, he found out some interesting things. He found there were three keys that enabled accomplishment to happen. The first key was... There had to be a belief in personal destiny. In other words, if a culture did not believe in personal destiny, that culture probably wasn't going to do anything. Secondly, there had to be a belief that fulfilling one's personal destiny was one's responsibility. That is, it isn't good enough just to believe you have a destiny. You've got to step out and take responsibility and do it. Now, please understand, we all all understand that we have to have the Holy Spirit to do this. Okay? Nobody's going to do this well by themselves. You need the empowering presence of Christ in you to do this. And the third thing he discovered was that he, there needed to be a culture that values and facilitates personal destiny. So these are the three things he said invariably he found in any culture, any civilization, any society where accomplishments happen, where human achievement came forth. And then he said something rather startling. Now remember, he's an agnostic. An agnostic believes that you can't know God. God may or may not exist, but you can't know that. So that's what an agnostic is. Now, my 
personal theory is that agnostics are really atheists, but they're chicken to say that. So I've never seen an agnostic who said he was a theist. They always default to atheism. So anyway, this man is, is an agnostic, self-professed agnostic, and here's what he said in his words. He said this. These three factors are found almost exclusively in cultures that embrace a biblical worldview. This is an agnostic researcher looking back over 3,000 years of human history all over the world in all different cultures. In fact, he said, when I started the project, I thought that I would find human accomplishment equally distributed among all the cultures. He says, I was stunned to discover that was not true. That human accomplishment happens in the context where a culture values a biblical worldview. Now what's really cool is this guy isn't even a Christian and he's figured this out. Okay? Now we Christians, we shouldn't be surprised at this. He was stunned at it. We ought to be saying, yeah, that's the truth because how would you expect anybody to have really any accomplishment in life without Christ? Why would you think that would happen? We just read a psalm like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a short psalm. It's a very simple psalm. And it says two things. It says if you want to prosper, you line up with God. If you don't line up God, you're going to be judged. Any questions? <laughs> That's what it says. And, and you know, we read that psalm and we, we say, yeah, that's true, kind of, sort of. But I know a lot of rich people out here that they seem to be prospering just fine without God. Well, you need to, you need to read Psalm 73 because Psalm 73 explains that. That is only an illusion of prosperity. In reality, they're on the road to being judged. It's just a matter of time. So the scriptures are very clear. If you want to prosper in this world, in this, in this existence, you have to do it through Christ. And when, when that doesn't happen, look at this text here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus. Now see, these were, Jesus is coming in Jerusalem and his followers are giving praise and glory to him. And the Pharisees are offended. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. Keep that in mind. Okay? So the religious leaders are ticked off and say, Jesus, tell your, tell your followers to be quiet. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is a stone crying out because we are not standing up and declaring this reality. So when we don't do it, God will send a pagan to do it. Hopefully that convicts some of us. All right, today's lesson is how biblical worldview changed the world. And I'm, I'm using Alvin Schmidt's book, and uh, if you haven't seen the book, uh, here it is. It is, it is an excellent book. It's been through at least two editions, probably more. But this man is a, a great researcher. Uh, he is a sound man of God. He spent, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 years researching this material. It's just a treasure, a treasure of information about what's happened over the last 2,000 years. So this, in a sense, is the Christian version of what Charles Murray did. So a lot of what I'm going to show you tonight has come from his book. Now, Christianity began in the first century, so let's look at the Roman worldview in the first century to get a sense of what's happened. We live now today in the 21st century, so we've got 2,100 years, thereabouts, 
between us and the Roman Empire. So what's happened? <clears throat> so let's just take a look at some of the characteristics of the Roman worldview. First of all, the theology that was prominent in the Roman worldview was pluralistic. Who remembers what pluralism is? As you, okay, what's pluralism? All worldviews are acceptable. Okay? Now, however, this was not quite true in the Roman Empire. It was pluralistic to a point. When it came to accepting Christianity, it did not accept Christianity. So Christianity was persecuted. It was pluralistic mostly, but not totally. Syncretistic. Who remembers what syncretistic is? What's that? That's where you value all worldviews. Whatever your worldview you have, I can learn from you. It doesn't matter what it is. That's syncretism. That's very popular today. Pantheism. What's pantheism? God is everything. God is, you know, God is the table, God's the floor, God's the trees, God's the, you know, the ceiling, God's everything. That's right. What's deistic? God created everything and then he went back and back and back alone and fell asleep. God's disconnected from his creation. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't connect. I like your wording. Yeah. I like your wording. Yeah. 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 The sounds almost like the Native Americans to a certain extent. Oh, they were. Yeah, you're going to find a lot of these things in a lot of different cultures. Okay. And then how about uh, fatalistic? What's that? What, what does that mean? Everything is preordained. It's already set, and you can't do anything about it. Okay. And finally, whimsical. Well, this is a God who is not predictable, who can change, who can uh, decide one thing one day and something else the next, and you, he's unpredictable. So these, this is their theology. Of course, they, were, they worship, they were polytheistic. They worship all these different gods. Got a lot of these gods from the Greeks. The Greeks were big with gods. Quite ontology, this is the, the, the question of existence. They believed that it was a real universe, but they didn't believe it was created. They really didn't have an answer for where things came from. It was very dualistic. That was very Greek. The Greeks were very dualistic. We separate spiritual reality and from physical reality. And spiritual reality is good. Physical reality is bad. And that you can see these, some of these things are still in existence today. Self-existence or eternal, that's their, that was their answer to creation. Then you have anthropology. Their anthropology was very interesting. You guys might like it because it was very male-centric. Women had no rights. Women were property. Women could be abused. They could even be killed by men, and it was okay. We'll go, we'll go into more detail on that in a minute. But their anthropology basically was there was no individual value. The only value you had in the Roman Empire was what you could do to help the state. Epistemology. This is the whole idea of learning and knowing. They were very Greek in their epistemology. Basically, they did thought experiments. And then you think through the implications of your theories. They did no empirical research at all. No inductive reasoning that was not valued at all. Hermeneutics, it was all about reason. And they were very mystical because they had whimsical gods. And teleology is all about personal pleasure or living a self-defined virtuous life. So you have the Epicureans and the Stoics. You may recall that discussion in Acts 17. And then ethics, it's all about unrestrained 
self-defined male indulgence. Males just did pretty much whatever they wanted to do, and they were unchecked. So this is the worldview. Anybody like this worldview? Does this grab anybody? Would, <clears throat> would, you, would you believe that we're actually moving back to this worldview? Okay. This is where we're going. If you, at the end, I'm going to show you a summary, and you can see as you start looking down the list of these things and you compare it to what we're doing today, it's kind of scary. It's scary how much we're going back to the pagan thinking of the Romans. Okay, so consider the transformation that's occurred because of a biblical worldview. Paul, I'm going to set my timer. About 40 minutes? 45 minutes? Is that good? He tells me you guys go to sleep at, at 8.20 or something. Is that right? He does. He does. He does. Okay, he's the one. Well, he made it sound like it was you. <laughs> All right, anthropology. The Roman worldview of human life was that it was not created, and your existence as a human being, the only value you had was to serve the state. That was it. No other value. Uh, by the way, uh, those of you that are studying history today, you may recognize that as the Chinese worldview today. Mm-hmm. That's the only value you have in China is what you can do to serve the state. So here's some practices that were going on in the first century. Infanticide, which is killing infants. Child abandonment, where you have a child who's alive, but you just abandon the child. Abortion, human sacrifice, and suicide. Those are all things that the Roman culture that were practiced and they were valued. In fact, suicide was considered to be a very noble thing. If you committed suicide, it's like you were in the elite class. You know, you took your life. And you may, if you've read any of the Roman uh, history, particularly the emperors, you know there was a lot of death and suicide and, and betrayal in, you know, the Roman emperors. I mean, there was, some of these Roman emperors wouldn't reign more than six months or a year before they got killed. Or they could see a, a coup was being plotted, so they committed suicide. So it was just a, it was a decadent society. And, of course, all of this is totally contrary to biblical Christianity. You see, Christianity views man in very different light. Because we know from Genesis 1.26 that God is made in the image of God. Excuse me, man is made in the image of God. So when you have man made in the image of God, you have something that's, that has a lot of dignity, that's, that's inherently holy. It's inherently got value. It's got purpose and intent because we have a God who works that way. So this is a very different view. So as we go down through these lists, all of these things we would say no to. These are not biblical ideas at all, biblical practices. Here's an interesting little story. During World War II on a remote island in the Pacific, an American soldier met a native who could read, and, and the native was carrying a Bible. Upon seeing the Bible, the soldier said, We educated people no longer put much faith in that book. The native from a tribe of former cannibals replied, Well, it's good that we do, or you would have been eaten by my people today. (laughs) Sexual morality. The Roman worldview allowed them to practice unrestrained sexual activities. I mean, you might think that we have a a lot of sexual immorality in our culture. Uh, We're just tipping the, the iceberg. There's just so much more that could happen. And you can see it here. For example, marriage. Marriage back then was viewed as just a, a man-made custom. You think we might be moving toward that? Yeah, rapidly. Rapidly we're moving toward that. Whereas in a Christian, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, by the way, there's no difference between a biblical worldview and a Christian worldview. It's the same thing. 
so I may use the terms, I'm using them interchangeably. But in a biblical worldview, marriage is a divine covenant. It's a contract. It's something that God originated. When you are put together as husband and wife, it's a divine union. It is not a man-made custom. Now, it's true that Christianity is the one that really developed the marriage ceremony and developed the vows and all that go into the marriage ceremony that we have today. That is all based on biblical thinking. It did not come from the pagans. They didn't do anything like that. They didn't have any concept of that. Then you have adultery. There was a double standard in the Roman Empire. The man could have sexual relationships with anybody wherever he wanted to. And by the way, in the Roman, Roman Empire, there was no privacy. I mean, you had lewdness going on all the time. You go to a public bathhouse, there'd be people, you know, doing all kinds of things in there. There was no such thing as privacy. You know, the whole concept of privacy is distinctly Christian. That is a, it's, it's due to a biblical worldview. The Christian worldview says that marriage is a holy institution. The marriage bed is to be kept, to be honored. And so the whole idea of being private about your intimacy with your spouse comes from a biblical worldview. The pagans had no view of that. They wouldn't understand it. If they were here today watching, watching us, they, they, would, they would think we're real strange. Yes. You know, one day I was walking where I live. There's a park across the street. I was taking my daily walk, and there was two people practically doing the wild thing out in public. I said, "You guys ought to take that to the privacy of your own bedroom." And they were laughing about it. Well, you have ran into a couple of uh, Romans, <laughs> just misplaced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. The next one here is uh, I'm, I'm just picking some of these as homosexuality. Of course, since you have no, no anchor for your ethical systems and ethical standards, you know, anything goes. So homosexuality will say, you want to do that, it's fine. You can do what, each to his own, whatever you want to do, it's fine. And, of course, we know that that is not a biblical concept. And then you have pedophilia, which is all about, you know, having illicit relationships, uh, usually with males with young boys, which today that's illegal. I was reading this week, though, that the age for that being an illegal act is continuing to drop. It started out at 21, and now some places it's 18, and others have dropped to 16, and I read this week that one place has dropped it to 14. They're just dropping the age. So that's the way they're removing the whole issue, is they're lowering the age. And, of course, you have group sex. That was a big thing. You know, that's, I remember back in the, in the 70s when group sex first began to be talked about. You know, prior to that, I don't recall it being talked about. And, yes, I'm old enough to know prior to the 70s. But back in the 60s, which were, there was, a, I think, a demon of immorality released into the culture at that point. Uh, even then, it was still, whatever was going on that was illicit, it was done fairly privately. But in, by the 70s, it began to get out in the open. It was like, you know, you know wife swapping and... You know, you know, orgies of all kinds of things. Well, that's what they had then. There was just unrestrained sexual activity. Lewdness was all over. It was in their paintings. It was on their coffee cups. It was on their dinnerware. It was on the on the walls in their in their homes. Every place it was it was just a sign of lewdness all all around. And this is all because they had no respect for God's morality. God defines the standard of sexual morality. Look at First Corinthians. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You've been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. See, that's the biblical worldview. They had no concept of that at all. They thought their body was their own and they could do anything they wanted with it. They, were, they felt like they had that right and that privilege. How about women? In the Roman worldview, women had virtually no rights. None whatsoever. And just to give you some examples of this, there was a practice called patria potestas, which means the father has absolute power over the family members. Absolute power means life or death power. It means the power to throw them out. It means the power to kick them out and they have nothing, and even forbid them from traveling, forbid them from working. And you know what that would mean? Death. Because there was no compassion in that culture. There were no charities. There were no hospitals. There was no health care. There was nothing. So if your family disowned you, if your father kicked you out, you're dead. It's over. And then you have the practice called manus. Uh, manus is where the husband had absolute power over his wife. Now, you know what that meant? That means he could divorce her. And he could say, you're divorced. Get out of the house. You may not travel. You may not work. You may not do anything here. And so what are you going to do? You're going to die. He could even kill her. He could legally kill her. He could legally kill his children. That's the power of manus in that culture. By the way, he could have affairs all he wanted. If the woman had an affair, was caught in an affair, death. Got it? <laughs> adultery. This is, uh, again, this is why I just mentioned that the woman had, could not have adultery. You say, look at that and say, wait a minute, wait, there has to be a partner to the man. Well, yeah, they did. And most likely, if, if they got caught, the man, they would do nothing to the man, but the woman would get killed. You hear that? I mean, it's very, very biased in, their, in the way they did things. Then they had the, a polygamy. A man could have multiple wives, but a woman could only have one husband. And then they have the old issue of suti, sati, which is still practiced in India. Basically, when your husband died, the wife was expected to die with you. So what they do in, in India today is they have a big, uh, they, have, they have a fire. They build up a kind of a tower. They put the, the man's body on top, and they expect the wife to crawl up on top and be burned with a hus with a, burned alive with the dead husband. They still do that. They still do that. So these are kinds of things that were going on in the Roman Empire. And, and by the way, if 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 the man divorced the woman, uh, sh she was almost certainly destitute and probably going to die very soon. Divorce was the kiss of death. So what do you think that did to the women? I mean, they keep them totally the slaves of the man, pleasing the man, because they know if they ever cross the man, it's it. It's over. Of course, Jesus Christ set women free. Because in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, we're obviously talking spiritually. Obviously, there's still males and females physically. But, in, but spiritually, from the standpoint of God's plan and purposes, males and females have equal standing in the kingdom of God. This is distinctly a biblical worldview. You hear this? Distinctly. It's not anything that the pagans would ever support. Charity. 
In the Roman uh, worldview, they had no charity, no care for widows or the needy, no child care, labor laws, no care for the ill, no care for the elderly. And I think this proverb here really speaks of it well. It says, a righteous man cares for the needs of his animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. I know what you're saying. I know a lot of wicked people that are charitable. They give money and they support charitable things. Well, I want to encourage you to get a biblical worldview of charity. How many of you studied charity from a biblical worldview? That's what I thought, because we don't do that. What we do is we just adopt the world's way of thinking about charity. When you think about charity, think about what it is that God wants to do. That's always the question. What is his will? You know, the calamity that happens in this world, you know, like the rising of the Mississippi right now, is that a random event? Just happening? Just bad luck? You know? You know, God mad at somebody? You know? That's how the Romans would look at it. Oh, the gods are mad. Get out of the way. You know, we're not going to help these people. So they had no sense of charity. But, you know, Christians ought to have a sense of charity, but we shouldn't just go and throw money at it. We need to be asking, what is the will of the Father? And the Father's will is always transformation. It's always bringing Jesus Christ to people. So whenever you, there is some kind of a need for, for charity, we need to be looking and seeing what the Father's doing and lining up with the Father. Just a quick little case study. I'm going to do this real quickly. I was, doing, I was in Canada a couple of years ago doing a plan for a, a nonprofit up there. And this nonprofit... They fed the homeless in their in this town. It was they, they, their focal point of their activities was the downtown of this city, and they had a homeless shelter and they had, um, you know, they had a, a food pantry and they they gave out sandwiches and all this kind of thing. So we're in this planning session, and I just was I, I felt that none of them had none of them had thought biblically about this, even though they're all professing Christians. Some of them are even you know very you know strong leaders in their churches. So I asked him, you know, what's a biblical worldview of charity? And so what do you think I heard? That's right, nothing. <laughs> they never thought about it. Never even crossed their mind. What they were doing is they were only looking at the tangible reality. And so I said, what is the root of poverty? Is it just bad luck? It's just bad circumstances? It's just... You know, just tough experiences. You know, maybe they're a victim. You know, what is it? What's the root of poverty? Well, what, what do you think I heard then? Nothing. Because <laughs> they hadn't thought about it. If you look at, go just start reading through Scripture. And let the Scripture tell you what causes poverty. You know what you're going to see? Sin causes poverty. If you want to really help someone who has a really bad circumstance, difficult circumstance, throwing money at him is probably not the solution. Figuring out how to bring Christ to them is the solution. It may involve money, but the priority has to be bringing Christ. Well, they had no sense of this at all uh, in the Roman Empire, so there was, there was no care for the widows at all. There was no care for the needy. There was no care for orphans. There was no care for mentally ill people. There was no care for elderly people and for charities. In fact, it's interesting. 
that as of 2006, uh, what I found on the internet, there was 1.4 million nonprofits in the United States alone. 1.4 million. All of these exist because of biblical thinking on some level. Now, let me be quick to tell you, I don't know that all of them should exist. Okay? And that's a whole other discussion about why they even exist. But there's, there's, there's a, a reality they never would have existed in the Roman culture. The Roman worldview would not have supported that. But a biblical worldview allows for these kinds of activities. Now, what we've got to do is we've got to line these activities up with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God for them to be licit. So, Gerald, is this everything from the Ford Foundation to Billy Graham? I mean, just, yeah, yeah, these are just nonprofits. 501 501c3s, and not all of those okay. profess Christian. But these, these are just nonprofit organizations. But see, the point is, none of these would exist in the Roman culture. Okay? It's a biblical worldview that introduced the whole idea of compassion. And, and you see this in texts like James 1.27, where it says religion. And by the way, this word for religion really is a word that means worship. Worship that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Which means think biblically. Everywhere where I don't think biblically, I have been polluted. Everywhere where you don't think biblically, you've been polluted. So if you want to really worship God, these are the kinds of things that you do. You stay focused on biblical worldview and living in biblical worldview, and you look after orphans and widows. And, of course, what that means, we could spend a whole night talking about that. But let me just suggest, it doesn't necessarily mean give them money. It means you give them Jesus. And... If in the process of giving them Jesus, it takes some money, it takes money. You hear the difference? Money is just a tool to do the will of God. That's all it is. It's like time is a tool to do the will of God. Your talents, your skill and ability are tools to do the will of God. The game is always the will of God. So charity is distinctly a biblical concept. Healthcare. The Roman worldview of healthcare was decadent. Sickness was a sign of human weakness. Disease was caused by imbalances in the body that were allowed by the gods, which implied sick people were under divine judgment. So they had a poor sense of cause and effect. They had no sense of external causes of diseases because they had no research, no empirically derived knowledge. They didn't have the studies that we have. You know, we, all, the, all the medication that we have, all the surgical procedures that we have, that's all been developed by Christians who practiced a biblical worldview. The Romans had no sense of that. There were no health care clinics, no hospitals, no physicians. They did have this God of medicine, but he, he, he was a whimsical God. So if somebody was sick, if Paul was sick, you know, in my house, you know what would happen? If I were in the Roman culture, I'd throw Paul out the door. Okay? Probably throw him around the back and say, don't come in. You come in, I'm going I'm to kill you. Well, he's going to stay out in the back, and he's going to die in the back. That's what's going to happen. Because nobody's going to come help him. Nobody's going to feed him. Nobody's going to put blankets around him. Nobody's going to protect him from the elements. Nobody's going to try to nurse him or carry him because he was anathema. He's sick. The gods are mad at you. I'm not going to touch you. So saving physically frail, abnormal, and unwanted children was an affront. 
If, you, if a child was born with some kind of defect, that child would either be killed at birth or would be abandoned. Sickness caused pain, panic and fear in people. Notice when somebody got sick, everybody's, oh, man, I'm out of here. Don't want to touch this. Sick and dying people were left to themselves. Surgery was beneath the dignity of the pantheistic doctors. So those that did connect themselves with the medical profession then didn't do anything because surgery was viewed as sacrilegious. You know why? If you're a pantheist, why would surgery be sacrilegious? Because my arm is God. I'm cutting God. You can't do that. Now, what, what I don't understand about the Roman worldview is, well, what about cutting wood? You know, what about chopping up an animal, you know, to eat? You know, there was clear inconsistency in their worldview, but this is why they, they didn't do any kind of surgical procedures at all. They, it was, it, it, they literally viewed that as sacrilegious. There were no medical facilities, no hospitals or clinics. But this, notwithstanding all this reality, Paul and Peter were doing a lot to project a biblical worldview, and you see it showing up in their epistles. Notice this text in Galatians 4, verse 14. It says, even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus myself. Now, do you understand in Roman culture how strange that would have been? How difficult that would have been for these Galatian Christians to do that? Because all their buddies would not have done it. All their buddies would have said, oh, that guy's sick. He's out of here. Gods are after him. But they welcomed him. And that, why was this illness a trial to them? Because they were having to be different from the culture. Nobody likes to be counterculture because what happens when you're counterculture? You get persecuted. You get abused. People say things about you. You know, so they were having to be counterculture, and Paul is, is commending them. You didn't treat me the way the Roman worldview says you should have treated me. You treated me biblically. You treated me like I was Christ. So you can see that the impact of a biblical worldview is already starting here in the first century, changing these Christians to where they think biblically and not like the Roman culture. So biblical worldview of healthcare teaches a mandate of compassion to heal the sick and injured. Here's some text, Romans, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you, Luke chapter 10. This is what Jesus instructed his disciples to go do when he sent them out. Uh, he, he gave them, you know, some tests. You know, he's the consummate teacher. A teacher who takes the student and says, okay, uh, I've taught you a lot of theory. Now you're going to go practice it. So he sends them out to practice. And this is what he tells them. Matthew 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Was, and Jesus was asking, really answering the question, who is the neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is that person when you're walking along in life, and you run across someone who has been hurt and wounded, it's no accident. You can be like the, the Levite or the priest and go on the other side. You see, that Levite and that priest, they just took on a Roman worldview. That's all they did. But the Good Samaritan took on a biblical worldview, and he treated 
you know, that hurt and wounded man as Christ would have. And Gerald, that was a biblical view, Old Testament-wise as well. I mean, yeah, they were, yeah. Finding up wounds and all of that, they didn't take this Roman view. They, they, 300 B.C. Israel would treat people. In, in theory, the Jews should have, but they didn't. And you see that, for example, in Ezekiel 34, when, when the Lord is criticizing the leaders, he starts talking about all the things you should have do, done, but you didn't. He says, you didn't go out and find the strays, and you didn't bind up the wounded, and you didn't nurse the sick back to health. You didn't, you didn't take them to food. You didn't give them water. You just used them for yourself. So even though they had the theory, they didn't practice it. Well, they, it wasn't counterculture, though, like, like it was in Rome. Well, they had, they had, a, a, they had a standard okay. that they didn't live up to. In the Roman Empire, they had no standard. Yeah. It, they didn't care. Medical care was organized and institutionalized based on a biblical worldview, based on a loving God, based on understanding sowing and reaping or cause and effect, based on empirical knowledge. Empirical knowledge is what the researchers do when they, when they run these tests and these experiments and with the lab rats and all that trying to figure out how, what medicines work. This is, a, this is empirically gained knowledge. They understand the importance of stewarding life and having compassion. These are the things that drove Christians to do what they did. So institutions that emanated from a biblical worldview are hospitals, mental institutions, elderly care institutions, the Red Cross. All of these came from a biblical worldview. Have you noticed that almost all the hospitals have a denomination associated with it? You know, Baylor, Methodist, Presbyterian. They're all, they're all associated with a biblical worldview. And not all the denominations were in the condition, you know, when they started that they are today. You know, most of the denominations have, you know, gone the way of becoming culturalized. But when they started out, most of them were pure in their convictions and what they stood for. And so they did, they did many really good things for a long time. Who knows who this person is? Florence Nightingale. She lived back in the 19th century. Now, she believed that she was called by God to be a nurse. Now, back in, in, 18, in the 1850s, when she was a young girl, about in her 30s, hey, what was nursing back then? Nobody knew what nursing was. There wasn't any nursing going on. And yet she felt this call of God. She wound up on a battlefield and uh, saw a lot of wounded soldiers, helped these wounded soldiers, nursed them to health, many times held their hands as they died, wrote letters to wives and girlfriends and parents, you know, explaining what happened. And she was really struck with this need for nurses. And so struck with this vision, she felt called to be a nurse. Well, she was a very devout believer. And so she said this, my philosophy in life is the kingdom of heaven is within me, but it, we must also make it so without. I have to express the kingdom of heaven. And she felt called to do that as a nurse. And so she's the one that actually founded one of the first nursing schools at St. Thomas Hospital in London in 1860. Distinctly Christian thinking. Pagans don't think this way. How about this guy? William Worrell Mayo. Does anybody recognize him? Okay. All right. Do you think he started the Mayo Clinic? Hmm? You would be wrong. You would be wrong. God has a very great sense of humor. Okay? The way he does things. 
He was a country doctor. He was just, uh, you know, happy to be a pill pusher. You know, he'd drive his carriage to your house and take two aspirin and I'll see you next week. You know, he was a friendly little country doctor. And he, uh, he happened to be apprenticed under a physicist by the name of John Dalton. Anybody know who John Dalton was? One of the great, great early physicists who was a Quaker, who was actually rejected by the scientific community because he was a Christian. Nevertheless, he continued to work as a scientist. And in the 1820s, when, when Mayo was a young lad, he actually apprenticed in the laboratory with John Dalton. And John Dalton taught him the way of the Lord. And he taught him science. And that's what inspired him to become a physician. Along the way, he developed a friendship with a, a lady named Maria Mose. Now, Maria Mose was a really cantankerous kind of lady. She was from Britain, and she was determined to be a nun. And she made several attempts to be a nun, but she was really struggling, uh, including coming to the U.S. and trying to become a nun here. Well, after, after many efforts and much work and probably much refinement of her own, um, own spirit, she was kind of a wild filly, she, she finally made it. She became a nun, and she joins this group of nuns that be, would become teachers. And eventually she became Mother Superior. She had about 30 nuns under her, and they were teachers in Rochester, Minnesota, Back in the early 1880s, at that time, she was about 50 years old. And back then, her li lifespan in the, in the 1880s, anybody know the lifespan in the 1880s? About 65. So she was getting the near end of her life. Now, she happened to meet, meet William through a what the world would call an accident. There was a tornado that came through town. And a whole bunch of people were killed and were injured, and uh, they had no hospital. So what do they do? They, they, the city fathers, uh, they go to the dance hall operator and said, look, we need your facility. We got a whole bunch of injured people. So they turned the dance hall into a, a temporary hospital. And so Maria and William met there, and they worked together for about three months, and they saw people live and saw people die. But Maria, through that experience, she was convinced, we need a hospital. It could be a place of life. Now, you need to understand, in the 1880s, hospitals, even though Christians were starting them, they were mostly for the dying. Because the health care knowledge was not very advanced at that time. So they were view, viewed as a place of death. They, they, it had value, but it was not a place where people got well. Maria said to William, says, William, we need to do a hospital where people get well. We can do this. William says to Maria, Maria, you're nuts. Nobody's got a hospital like that. I don't know how to do a hospital like that. Go away. I love you, Maria, but go away. Maria says, no, William, we need to do it. And so she pesters William. And finally, she gets William to commit. And she says, William, if I raise the money to build the hospital, will you staff it? And finally, you're thinking, you know, this is a pretty safe bet. She's a nun sworn to a vow of poverty. How is she going to raise the money to build a hospital? How's that going to happen? So he said, all right, Maria, all right, to get rid of you, I will agree to do that. So Maria, again, she's a feisty lady. She gets her nuns, and they start raising money. Now, how do you think they raised money to build a hospital? What would you have done? Bake a lot of cookies. Hmm. Oh, you, all kinds of fundraisers and, you know, bake cookies and all that. Uh, <clears throat> ask for charitable donations, right? Okay. They did none of that. 
None of it. They didn't do anything like we would have done today. What do you think they did? Thirty nuns living on a, on a, a, a vow of poverty. What do you think they did? They prayed, they cut their meager expenses, took on extra work, and saved every dime they could. How long do you think it took? Five years. By 1886, Maria has the money. So she goes over to William's office, this little country doctor who's ignoring what's going on, because, see, there's no big hoopla about this. There's not a bunch of stuff in the press, not any big fundraisers, nothing going on. He doesn't realize what's happening. And here's Maria. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, Maria. How are you doing? Oh, great, William. I've got it. You got what? I got the money. What money? The money to build a hospital. What hospital? Remember, remember you told me five years ago if I raised the money to build a hospital, you'd staff it. William goes into a panic. A total panic. He said, what am I going to do now? I don't know anything about staff in a hospital. So he grabs his two sons, Will and Charlie, and he says, guys, you're going around the world. you got one year because Maria's going to have this hospital ready in one year. So you're going to go around the world. Every place that you can find that knows how to help people get well, you go find out what they're doing. So literally, Will and Charlie went all over the world for a full year, gathering information, coming back, and a year later, St. Mary's Hospital opened, and um, it eventually became the Mayo Clinic. You see, the Mayo Clinic didn't get birthed by William, it got birthed by a woman who wasn't even a medical practitioner. She was a teacher, sworn to a vow of poverty, but she was God's servant to do his will. Maria Mose died about eight years after. By the way, she was her, her superior, who was a priest, got jealous of what she did and took her out of the city. She never saw what the hospital became. She died before she saw it. Is that okay? If God uses you that way and you'll get to see it, is that okay? And William, was he was in his 60s. He died shortly after that. He never saw what had happened. But his two sons turned it into a true testimony to Christ. And it today is still one of the great institutions of life that exist today. Okay, well, needless to say, I could spend a lot of time talking about that story. There are many fascinating elements of that story, including how they use their money. Very fascinating, but don't have time. All right, in a Roman worldview, education was limited to the male children of the wealthy, all females and males of the lower class did not rate education. There were no formal institutions, none. There were no schools, no universities, nothing. Now, you might have found a philosopher that you could kind of hang around with, but you would not be formally educated as we know it today. All formal education, all schools, graded schools, universities and colleges came from people with a biblical worldview. Under the influence of a biblical worldview, education became universal, mandatory, and institutionalized. And I say that not in a bad sense, in a good sense, in the sense that it became, it became a process that everybody adopted. And education began with a the theology that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so the early institutions here in the, in the United States 
they were virtually all started by Christian denominations. And if you went to college, the first two years of your college training were the same no matter what you were going to major in. Whether you're going to be a, a preacher, a lawyer, a scientist, a teacher, a businessman, a salesman, it didn't matter what you were going to major in. First two years are the same. Theology. Theology is what you started with. And so it's this, the Christian community that comes in and ex understands the importance of what a building education on, on the Lord and the knowledge of the Word of God. So people like Martin Luther came along in the Reformation. He brought universal compulsory education to bear. Then we have graded education. We have kindergarten. You know what kindergarten was? There's this gentleman in Germany, and on Sundays he found that there's a whole bunch of rowdy kids in the, in the, uh, in the, in the city there just doing nothing but mischief. So he, he rounded them up, and he started teaching them on Sunday mornings. And he's taught them a biblical worldview. And the city fathers were so impressed that these rowdy kids suddenly becoming orderly, productive, you know, helpful, polite, kind children that the, the city fathers began to support all this. And that's how kindergarten got started. Sunday school was the same kind of kind of thing. Every college institution founded in the colonies prior to the Revolutionary War, except the University of Pennsylvania, that was the one exception, was established by some branch of the Christian church. Education is the purview of Christianity. Every, every school you see, every public or private institution, religious or secular, is a testimony to Jesus Christ. So when you drive by a school, even, I don't care if it's a public school, that school exists because of people with a biblical worldview and their vision for what it is to really have education. Science. Roman worldview of science was based on the presuppositions of deductive reasoning, pantheism, and deism. Now, deductive reasoning is reasoning from the whole to the parts. So a deductive reasoning process begins, begins with a theory, you know, or some fact, and now we're going to break it down and analyze the implications of it. So that's what the Greeks pr promoted. They had no sense of inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is about going from the pieces to the whole. A doctor has to work inductively. A lawyer, a police officer with crime, solving crimes, that's inductive reasoning. So anytime you're solving a puzzle, you know, you're using your inductive reasoning. We're, we're analyzing a business problem. Let's say that you, you're looking at a P&L. Well, now you're going to break it down. You're going to analyze it. That's deductive reasoning. So that was their basic theory. Pantheism and deism dominated their thinking. So the most fundamental presupposition that undergirds science is that a rational, predictable God created the universe and ordained that it be governed by timeless universal principles which are discoverable. That is uniquely Christian. That was not Roman. They had no such concept at all. They, their view of God was he was whimsical. You know, if he existed at all, he was disconnected. And you couldn't know hardly anything about it. Nothing was predictable or repeatable. Well, the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So Christian men like Roger Bacon introduced inductive reasoning and the whole idea of research, doing research, empirical research, and discovering truth about God's creation from that research. Then you have uh, other people who apply, apply cause and effect, sowing and reaping to the medical sciences. 
And so this is the gentleman here that have founded, really is the father of modern anatomy. And it was all because he thought biblically. If you don't think biblically, you can't understand God's creation. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If you're going to understand his creation, you've got to think his thoughts. And so these scientists that made these great achievements here, these were all Christian men. Galileo, Kepler, Blaise Pascal. These are people you may have heard of through your training. Well, they were all believers in Christ. Isaac Newton. Did you know Isaac Newton has a multi-volume theology set? You probably can't find it. It'd be hard to find, but he did it. He wrote a lot of theology. He wrote more on theology than he did on science. He's known for his science, not his theology. And here's John Dalton, the uh, spiritual father for William Mayo. Did you know Dalton was partially colorblind? And what do you think he did? He pioneered colorblind theory. He's also the early developer of modern atomic theory. Then you have Andre Ampere. Who knows what an amp is? Or what an amp is? Okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a unit for measuring electrical flow. Look what he said. One of the most striking evidences for the existence of God is the wonderful harmony by which the universe is preserved and living beings are furnished in their organizations with everything necessary for life. This is a scientist who studied God's creation, who is wondering. He says, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. He's delighting in God's creation, and he's driven to the reality that, that this could not have just randomly happened. This had to be the work of divine sovereign, a divine sovereign God. And James Simpson, he's the first one to use chloroform. And ether medically. Now, how do you think that he came to believe that anesthesia would even work? He meditated on Genesis chapter 2. Remember what it says there? It says God put Adam to sleep, took the rib out to make the woman. Then Adam woke up and he was okay. So he reasoned, aha, there must be a way to put people to sleep and do surgery on them. Maybe he tried it on himself. No, you know who he tried it on? He tried it on the Queen of England. Really? He did. She was desperate for a solution. And so he proposed it. All of her advisors said, no, don't do it. And she did it anyway, and she was healed through the surgery. So this is one of the steps that was made toward seeing that surgery could be a, a, a way to heal people, to facilitate healing. So you see, this all happened because men and women think biblically and dared to act on what they saw in Scripture. William Kelvin, who recognizes that name? Kelvin scale. Okay. Kelvin saw no inconsistency between Christianity and science. He stated, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to the belief in God. These are scientists talking. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. All right, how about government? You see, government of the Roman worldview was based on the emperor who was a dictator and was not subject to his own laws. Citizens had value only to the degree that they were useful to the state. So people were utilitarian for the state's purposes. So this is, this is the way they operated. Jesus Christ came along. He challenged that. He challenged that by saying, 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This was a sense of separation of church and state. Now, it's not a sense of saying that the state is to operate independent of God. That's not what he's saying. But he's recognizing the reality of Romans 13, where it says that all authority comes from God. God delegates authority to civil leaders. They have the authority, and their job is to execute God's will in the culture. That's what your representative should be doing. So if you've got representatives that are not seeking the will of God for the culture, boot them out and get the people in that are thinking biblically that's what they're supposed to be doing. People are equal but distinct individuals before God. This is not a caste system, nor is it egalitarian. In other words, government should recognize the dignity and purpose of God in each human being. The Magna Carta came along because rulers thought they were above the law. Magna Carta came along, and again, this is inspired by Christian thinking, and said, no, everybody is subject to the law because the law ultimately comes from God. It's not from us. And then, as created beings, human rights, which we call unalienable rights, emanate from the Creator, not from human government. This is one of the things our founding fathers understood. There were rights there as human beings that did not come from government. They're not derived from government. They're derived from God himself. And so you see, biblical worldview brings in a totally different way to see people and how to govern people. How about work? You see, in the Roman culture, the only people that did work were the slaves. You see, work was demeaning. Work was, uh, that's, that was just, if you had to work, I mean, that was too bad. You're kind of, you're underprivileged. You know, you're being penalized. So labor was demeaning. Labor was only for slaves. Free citizens did not work. Okay, that was just not part of their culture. Now, in the Hebrew worldview, which is the Old Testament thinking, was, is obviously more biblical. Work, labor is honorable. The labor is the, worthy of his wages, and property rights are enjoined. And that is, you need to know what you're supposed to steward. You see, what you have when the Israelites went into the promised land, they were, they were given property, which means they had right to the property, which means they had responsibility to steward the property. See, with, with right goes responsibility. That's the way God works. So they understood the, the, the importance of property rights, so you would know what you're supposed to steward, what God has assigned to you. So the Christian worldview gets more complete. Labor is honorable. Labor deserves his wages. The labor is a calling. It's a vocation from God. Work is... We should develop a work ethic. We should value work, and there's dignity associated with being in the middle class, which where most of us are, and there's a profit motive for work. And you see, they viewed work as a fulfillment of the creation mandate. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the earth. Well, ruling is work. How do you rule? You grow, you multiply, and you subdue, you master so that's what we should be doing today. By the way, the Great Commission, which many people that profess to be Christians today are building their lives around this Great Commission as if that's it, like there's nothing before it. Did you notice that there's a whole Old Testament before the Great Commission is given in Matthew 28? You've got to ask, how does Matthew 28, where the Great Commission is given, how does that connect to the Old Testament? How does it connect to all that went before? Well, the point of the Great Commission is 
We all have a mandate from God to rule his creation. We have a problem called sin that keeps us from doing it. Jesus Christ came to deal with sin. So now through Christ and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, I can do what I was put here to do. That's how they connect. See, and we generally don't see that in Christianity today. So even though the scriptures, I think, give us a very, very strong view of work, most of us don't really get it. Most of us tend to go back to the Roman view of work. Have you ever had anybody say to you, oh, you have to work? Has anybody said that to you? Oh, you have to work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. End all, be all. Just retire as soon as you can. Make as much money as fast as you can so you can go do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. That's very Roman thinking. It's not biblical thinking. Well, let me just give you some key principles that facilitate success in the workplace. And I know I am pushing time, so this will be fast, okay? All right. These are, these are biblical thoughts that enable work to happen. We have a linear view of time. Now, that may seem trivial to you. But you know what the meaning of a linear view of time is? That means you make progress. A circular view of time, you don't make any progress. You just keep going around and around and around. Linear view of time, you go someplace. has purpose and intent associated with it. There's a rational universe, timeless universal principles, and predictable patterns that we get to work in. I mean, that's a reality. We take that for granted. The Roman culture knew nothing of this. We have a mandate to work. We know that God created us to work. It's interesting. If you look at the stats, when people retire, the risk of dying goes up dramatically. Because we, we are not made to do nothing. We think doing nothing is the panacea. No, you stop doing nothing. It does, there's nothing that satisfies you, nothing that gives you life. Because you've been put here to work. And there may be different phases of what that looks like. But we are here to rule God's creation, and we do that through work. Stewardship is all about property rights. God assigns you certain things. You're assigned to live a certain place. You're assigned to, to work at a certain place. You're assigned to gifts and talents and time. You're supposed to steward all that. Vocational calling means that God has an intent and a purpose for calling you. Whatever your work assignment is, if you're doing what you're called to do, then, hey, it's divinely ordained. And you've been gifted and prepared to do that. The golden rule is a principle. It's an incredible rule. And I, we could sit and talk about stories, but even pagan companies that practice this, they're blessed. It's a blessing anytime you practice the golden rule. And the golden rule is not who has, he who has the gold makes the rule. That's not the golden rule. It's treat the people the way you want to be treated. Servant leadership, powerful. It's the only way to lead. You, you hear, see all these theories of leadership out there. You just need to throw most of those away and get, get down to being a servant leader. Sowing and reaping, the power of sowing and reaping. The Romans knew nothing of that. They didn't understand that. Provision through work, God will provide with, for you through your work. This is a byproduct. Most of us get all focused on the provision. God wants us to focus on the work. Focus on the work, which is get lined up with his will and his ways, and he'll take care of you. When you focus on the provision, then you're, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping the money. Worship God, he'll take care of the money. Interdependence and teamwork. I mean, well, it, I always get amused when I read these articles about this, like we've learned how important it is to work as a team. Well, really? Well, all you had to do was read the Bible. It would tell you that. Did you know the world spends a lot of money doing all this research discovering what's in the Bible? You ever notice that? I mean, the, the, anytime you are in rebellion against God, it will be inefficient 
And the best you will get is just a partial revelation. You will waste time and resources when you don't trust and believe the Word of God. And work is a means to glorify God. Work is the way that God has called you to worship Him most of the time. Now, if you think worship is what you do on Sunday morning, you don't get it. Work is a great way to worship. In fact, in, in Genesis 2, the very first word that's spoken of that refers to work is the word abad, the Hebrew word abad. In Psalm, that word is translated to serve and worship. You hear that connection? Implicit from the creation, work is a way to worship. This is distinctly biblical. No other worldview has this concept. So here's the, the takeaway here, and because of time, I'm not going to, I could just do another hour on this, but we won't do that, okay? Just want you to compare the Roman thinking to biblical thinking, and just look at some of the things that are happening today that are very Roman, like abortion, no divine origin. This morning I was watching a, an interview, there's been a research project done, where they have discovered that um, on average, the wealthiest people are Reformed Jews. They tend to make more money than anybody else. And so Fox Business had to interview these people, find out why is it you make so much money. Is there something in your worldview that causes you to make all this money? And they had other worldviews like the Baptists and other things like that. They're way down the totem pole. Pentecostals are way down, way down. So <clears throat> they, they were getting into this. And one of the things this guy said is we have no sense of divine origin, or excuse me, of divine destiny. They do think of, they have divine origin, but no destiny. There's no script. There's no purpose for us. We make our own way. Well, that's very Roman thinking. Very Roman thinking here. Then we have abortion. Euthanasia is coming up. You guys know about the Death with Dignity Act up in Oregon. That's, that's euthanasia. Polygamy. We've got homosexuality coming along. Pedophilia is coming along. Repressed under the male caste system. Now, we're not having that so much, but we may be having the other extreme where the women are getting, you know, kind of out of control. All right? I mean, you can be out of control in either way. We need a biblical perspective of male and female. No compassion, cruelty for the poor and needy. Did you know the kindest acts of the wicked is cruel? That's what Solomon said. So if you've got all this... All these charities out there trying to express compassion, but they're not biblical in how they do it. What are you doing? You're cruel. You're back to the Roman Empire. But it looks like you're charitable. It looks like you're compassion. But you're not. You're being cruel. Okay? No compassion for the care for the sick or dying. Well, we're, we're doing better than they were there. Okay? Only males from wealthy families were educated. Uh, there may be some truth of that still going on. Whimsical laws. We, we have whimsical laws. Okay. Dictator who was exempt from his own law. Yeah, we, we kind of see some signs for that. Work is demeaning. Okay. Because now we have to work. We don't see it as a privilege. We don't see it as divinely ordained. We don't see it as our calling. So hopefully you can see that a biblical worldview is the only worldview that leads to true blessing, leads to true prosperity, leads to true success. It leads to true accomplishment, to do what we have been put here to do 
only through Jesus Christ. So may the Lord give us the grace to reject the Roman worldview and all the implications that are trying to creep back into our culture and really to embrace biblical thinking in every area. Well, Lord, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for your truth. Your word is so powerful. The truth of what it is to be biblical and how we live, give us the grace to do that well. To your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.